Hello and welcome to episode 221 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast. I am Ryan Top, and you may have noticed no James and uh, actually also no Paul. So Paul is uh, was returning from the Packers game, unfortunately for him, and uh, snow caught him up there. And James just dealt with some technical issues just in the last few minutes that kept him from being able to join us tonight. But we do have a uh, a special guest, and uh, uh, this is like a super big throwback for us because I I think the last time you and I were on a podcast together, just ourselves, because I don't know if we ever did that during the uh, during the Milwaukee's tailgate era. I'm, I almost think we didn't, but we did a whole bunch of episodes way back in what 2011, 2012 of Bernie's Crew. Is that right, JP Breen? It was a while ago. I mean, we did a bunch of the minor league stuff together for the tailgate era. So, I mean, it's not going to be that big of a throwback. But in terms of folks um, being able to remember all the way back to the Bernie's crew days when I assume I said a bunch of things I'm embarrassed about now. But (laughs) I I think that's a a safe bet on both of our parts. Yeah, Uh, probably also some things would be like, wow, that was brilliant. And uh actually uh has has held up and stood the test of time uh i don't even know are those things still available online anywhere could you go back and listen to them or i hope not uh, yeah i mean that's i don't know who would be even hosting them at this point so they they probably just don't exist anywhere on the internet maybe they're in somebody's archive do you have an old laptop somewhere maybe they're on the, the hard drive i do still have some of the some old stuff i could definitely scrounge it up if i felt the need <laughs> which i don't so i wouldn't worry about it too much all right yeah well okay let's let the past stay buried then i was gonna say i had i had them all on my like just because of how i was uploading them and in you know whenever it was i had them like all through itunes basically oh that's right okay that's how i had to convert them to mp3 so they were all in my itunes for a long time and i always had to be careful so i would imagine oh yeah no they're still in it i got them all don't worry about it <laughs> well this has been tech talk with uh jp and ryan and uh yeah well at, at least uh i know those things are still there and uh, i can be blackmailed with them should the uh, need arise so that's that's fantastic i mean you can't be because i would have to know what to blackmail you with <laughs> oh all right well let's dig in here uh Go through James's intro here. It's been a long time since I've done this. Uh, you can become a patron by signing up for as little as two bucks a month at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. That will get you question priority on here and on this podcast, as well as the reporting is eligible uh, Packers podcast. Five bucks a month gets you some extra content. You get a minor league extra podcast with Ryan and James Anderson from Rotowire. In fact, I am sitting on one right now that I'd forgotten I even had and needed to edit. So that'll be going up in the uh, the next day here as well. Um, you also get Paul's reporting as eligible preview mini pods where he'll preview the game every week. And uh, that now, unfortunately, is done for the year. Did you uh, have the unfortunate um, displeasure of watching the Packers lose last night? I did watch it. Mm. Did you enjoy it? Was it fulfilling? I this is a, a very unsatisfactory answer, which I feel like is a nice little opening salvo for the podcast in general um i didn't really care (laughs) like it was it was one of those that 
I just haven't really followed the the Packers in depth that much for years. And so, you know, I usually watch probably five, six games a year. Um, but in general, I am now in a place that I feel like is very good emotionally in which if they won, I would have been like, that's super cool. I'm glad a bunch of people in my life are happy. <laughs> and if they didn't, it's like, okay. And then just move on with my night. <laughs> now, Liverpool, on the other hand, that was something you cared quite a bit more about. And they did pull out a win this morning. There's some controversy surrounding that. They uh, they did win this morning. I do get far more emotionally invested. I did not get up this morning for that because I am on the West Coast and I was up late doing some work and felt like sleeping. So I, I didn't get up for it. I normally do, but I felt... I felt the need to uh, just kind of take it, take a back seat. I already got extremely upset for the, the Badgers basketball game. I didn't need to do it again to myself. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I took a little bit of a break, but it was nice to be able to get up. And basically as soon as I turned in, they got a penalty that nobody liked and I was able to see him win. Yeah. Okay. So you saw the, the pen that nobody liked, which, yeah, that was a little dodgy. I actually think the, the second goal was the worst call like that. He clearly was offside and that should have not counted. So I, I had more issue with that one, but they won. They're surviving this tough patch that they're in, but nobody's listening to this to, to hear about that. There might be the random Bundesliga listener from our, uh, our Bundesliga talks back in would have been April and May of 2020. Uh, but I don't think too many people tune in for the uh, the Premier League chat, so I guess we'll just have to leave it at that. I mean, there is one person I know who does. His name is Steve. <laughs> and hello to Steve. <laughs> well, he's behind right now. I, I don't even know that he's uh, uh, he's caught up with last week's episode yet. So, um, Well, then I look forward to getting a text message in our group chat uh, in about a week and a half. <laughs> about how much he doesn't enjoy the fact that uh, that this happened. But again, hello to Steve. Well, I wish he, you were here. You know, he's going to be complaining that we didn't ask him to join. And that is purely just a function of this was totally a last minute thing that we were down to a two man booth. It was supposed to be James hosting and then us two. So, I mean, he would have said no anyway. Um, you know, he's been pretty good about saying yes lately. He, but it's, 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 it's late. It's late. It's post Packers depression. Like he would have said no. Yeah, mm, quite possibly. So, but oh, we do right. wish we do wish he was here. Well, I I wish he was here. I will not <laughs> presume to speak for Ryan. No, that's fine. I can I can tolerate him in small doses every once in a while. <laughs> be okay with that so <laughs> throughout your entire life <laughs> that, yeah it's pretty much yeah that's the that is the the way that that goes so anyway uh let's dive in here we have a few just uh, uh quick topics to discuss here and i don't know how closely you've been following the ongoing labor talks really mostly lack of labor talks with uh mlb being in in shutdown right now but it sounds like there is supposed to be another meeting this week where the players will come out with a counterproposal their first since November. I don't think they even put in a proposal in December and they haven't anything since then. So any uh, any thought that this is going to move anything or are we just in a holding pattern here for a while? No, I mean, I look forward to hearing from Rob Manfred and a bunch of uh, random GMs that are going to talk to J John Heyman. 
and uh, and maybe <laughs> and and maybe uh, Nightingale, uh, and we will hear about how a bunch of things are just absolutely absurd. Um, and also consistently look forward to hearing about how Rob Manfred is willing to talk to talk about a bunch of things, but not anything that actually the players would want. So it's much, it feels very much like when you get to those situations, it's late, late July. You hear that the New York Yankees are extremely interested in somebody that the pirates have. And then we find out that the Yankees are absolutely open to a lot of interesting packages that are going to be available for this really top tier pitcher, but they're not interested in moving any of their top 10 prospects. But aside from that, I mean, they are open. (laughs) They are absolutely open to discussing that top 10 out of the question. Anything after that, let's talk and we can bring Garrett Cole to, uh, to New York, you know, and it feels very much like, you know, the MLB knows where the power is. They know that they're the ones negotiating from leverage and they're going to be able to dictate what the message is because the players association doesn't talk to the media much. And everybody who is a reporter wants to report on this story because it is the biggest story of the baseball off season. And so they are going to be clamoring from everything. And it's my view that most mainstream sources that look at the the labor issues don't don't think much about power um don't think much about structures and are very interested in presenting both sides as if they have equal power in the conversation and then there comes the conversation of of there's going to come a point in which everybody just wants baseball to happen and then it's and the owners are waiting for that moment basically. And then Mm -hmm. it's going to be public pressure to just get the game started. So when you talk about leverage, do you think that, because I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, and I don't know that I've vocalized it really, but like, are the owners actually at sort of a low point of their leverage in terms of what they've had over the players in quite a long time right now, just because of one, the missed revenue from 2020, where they didn't get nearly as much revenue. Now, they didn't lose money in the way that they're claiming, but they definitely did not get the revenue that they were expecting in 2020. And there's already, we know that there was a cash call with the Cleveland Guardians. So there, there's been some of that. And the players, on the other hand, are more organized. They've been holding back um, money to be able to weather some of this to be able to to maintain solidarity so that if they did have to really hold the the line firm that they could miss some paychecks and the players could still be getting paid from the union as opposed to the teams so i kind of wonder if this is a, a situation where i we know that the owners always have more power and have more leverage but are they at sort of a low point of their their relative uh leverage compared with the players right now yeah, I mean, maybe. I think those are some good points. Whether or not it's low enough to matter is another question. It's also... It's inherently more difficult to get hundreds, if not thousands of players on the same page versus getting 30 people on the same page. And 
everybody in that thousand plus players association has different needs. They are going to have different priorities. And on the other side, there is one priority and they all have the exact same priority. And there are countless, there are countless examples. And now like, you know, I'm a labor historian, so kind of it's life, but like there are countless examples of owners and whatnot. And many of these people are business owners. Many of these people own a lot of different, you know, uh, whether it's businesses, properties, what have you, they're not stupid. They are going to understand that it is going to be much better for them to take a short-term cash loss than it is going, than it is going to be to make a structural change that they don't want. So they're always going to be in a position in which they know holding the line for them over a longer period of time is going to be better. The only time that that calculus changes, in my view, is when there is public pressure on them from the outside and not just the players association in an adversarial relationship. And I do not see, I don't know where that support comes from. I don't necessarily know how that support gets organized because when it comes down to it, there are two things that are always going to happen. Number one, people want baseball. Consumer concerns are very, very difficult to overcome. And the other thing is it's going to always come down to this fact of everyone saying they're millionaires. What does it matter? I mean, that has and, gotten better though, right? That's not the I mean, problem amongst, it used to be. Amongst very, very small corners of the broader baseball ecosystem. They don't need, they don't need, you know, 25 bloggers for each team to be able to realize that labor issues are different. Right. Like that is not what they need. No, I mean, but like there was a poll in the athletic uh, over the last couple of weeks where they looked at just general baseball fans who are athletic subscribers and they were overwhelmingly blaming the owners for the the for where things sat. And but what does that, that mean? That I mean, there are there are a bunch of people that are going to sit around and blame Congress for the reason that Congress isn't doing anything either. But that, that does that lead to any change? I mean, that it requires organization. It requires uh, coordination. It requires uh, a common message being able to come out. And I don't I'm not as close to this as I would like to be. But in my view, I don't know what the Players Association is saying to anybody. I don't know how they are trying to being able to coordinate public support on any of this. Well, they've been keeping their powder dry for the most part, right? Like they've been pretty quiet and holding their cards close to their vest, which I think is definitely a tactical decision that they're making, though I'm not exactly sure what that tactical decision is, um, why they're doing it, but they're definitely, they're definitely being quiet and they're also not, it, it will be very interesting to see what they actually put on the table this week because they really have been very quiet about what their priorities are. We, we kind of generally know that their big things are, you know, uh, trimming back and getting the, the, um, the luxury tax thing uh, trimmed way back. They want to do something with service time to allow players to get to free agency quicker. And they want to do something with, um, what was the third thing? Arbitration. And, MLB basically said, no, we won't discuss any of those things, as you alluded to earlier. Like, they just said, no, we're not going to talk about that. And the player said, okay, then we have nothing to talk about. And they walked. And I think they're letting the owners sort of bash their head against a wall for a while here 
um, because and, and they're also letting the owners control the narrative. They're also and they're also letting the owners be the one who who come out and talk about the number one thing that's going to always be a problem: competitive balance. Yeah, and we've talked about this since we've had podcasts together that the the way that baseball has balanced competition for uh, going back as long as I've been following the game closely, so a couple decades now, um, the way that they balance competition is on the backs of the players. And that has been the way that the, the system was set up, and I don't know how you get around that and, and work with that because – I don't think either of us really wants to see a system like European football where you have like you have like at this tiered system where teams simply even though there are all these teams in the Premier League, there's 20 teams in the Premier League. There's really only a handful of them that can truly compete um, unless something you know monumentally insane happens like that one year Leicester City had that run. But I don't think that's good for the sport in the long run, but I also don't think that I I think there's a long way to go to get to that point. You would have to do a lot of really radical things in terms of reshaping how baseball, the the basic structure of the contracts works and all that before you got to that point, there's a long ways to go to that. And you would have to create a different system in, in terms of the relationship between baseball teams and government. Yes, and that actually might be changing because it does look like the uh, they they might get rid of the antitrust stuff, but they are they are not changing anything with taxation. Oh, you they mean in not. terms of how they tax in the because yeah, you can get rid of antitrust, but the Yankees if they're are still going to have a structural advantage no matter what, right? Like sure, you you are still looking at a system in which if you are allowing if you are allowing free markets to play, there is nothing that you're going to be able to do to stop the structural advantages that bigger teams are going to have. You're just not. And the number one way that people have always found a way to get around that competitive balance issue to your point is to be able to depress the wages of of players. And they've done that through the draft. They've done that through international signing bonus pools. They've done it through, and you know, and they still want an international draft. They've done it by trying to limit how many minor league uh, teams that they can have. But you know, when it comes down to it, they're still going to have like the dream league or whatever they're calling it. <laughs> um, you know, and and so you're still moving from a system in which that is going to be something that is really difficult to to get around. Um, and I mean, to your point, like. Do I want a system in which the bigger teams are kind of rewarded and have and kind of have those structural advantages in which that they can in which they can kind of just buy whatever they want? Um, I'm not nearly as opposed to that as I used to be. I mean, I in in a lot of ways, I think it's about what I necessarily want to get from sports. And I don't think that that's the same thing as a lot of other people. Um, And so my view on that is never, you know, I don't think is going to align with what a lot of other people are going to want on it because I am willing to sacrifice competitive balance. Yeah. And that's always going to be a, a tricky situation to, to get into. I'm yeah, not sure. It's, it's consumer, it's consumer support, right? Well, yeah. And 
how would you get to the point where I guess in in English football you have fans of teams that are used to understanding that they're just not on the level to compete with the big boys and there's a level of understanding of that and they set different you know smaller goals for themselves like getting to the Premier League staying up uh, maybe having some success in cup matches things like that that it's a little bit harder in baseball because it's a close shot because there's the 30 teams and that's it and yeah but it, as much as but as much as everybody still talks about it Southampton's out here getting sellouts every single game no, it they, is it is it is not it is not saying that you know all of these places can't deliver something that people want and it's not just spectacle on television i mean i and me as a consumer if we're talking about the premier league in it for a moment like when it comes down to it in terms of of, of tv if you're going to have manchester city versus i don't know pick somebody in the middle crystal palace am i going to watch that or am i going to watch newcastle and and norwich i am a hundred percent going to watch the latter every time <laughs> well, there's a lot of people that don't understand what you just said, but right. But it's it's. Am I going to watch? If am I going to? Tr- am I going to tune into something in which you have a really really good team who I know you know ninety five percent of the time is going to win, or am I going to watch two teams that are kind of on the same level? Are they as good as as the top level team? No, but is it going to be competitive and is it going to be fun? Yeah, and there's different reasons for that. In terms of relegation, there are also a lot of different kind of different kinds of competitions. Because the number one thing that you know European football has learned, world football has learned, aside from the MLS, and there's a reason why MLS is a closed shop. They come up with different competitions. Mm-hmm. There are, and and it's what and and what do you want to get out of the game? What do you want to get out of the support, uh, the the sport? And in baseball, I think that there are a lot of really hardcore people that would say the number one thing about watching baseball or being a Brewers fan is to be able to go to Miller Park and enjoy, you know, enjoy tailgating and be able be able to kind of make memories with my family or to, or to do whatever. That's not as prevalent. It's not a, it's not as much of a lifestyle. And part of that is distance. Part of that is television. Part of that is kind of community culture. Right. I mean, like there are a lot of other kinds of sports where being a sports fan is about community engagement and it's about being part of the community. And that isn't really the case in the U.S. Um, So they're going to have different relationships with that. They are going to really struggle to get over the competitive balance issue. And, you know, the only other way that you're going to come down on competitive balance is taxing the baseball teams more like doing more revenue sharing different things like that and they're going to always demand sacrifices on the other side in terms of pay yeah yeah it's a thorny issue we're not going to solve it here um but i it was interesting i've been wondering what your thoughts were on it off and on as we've been going through this and i wasn't totally surprised by anything but it was i mean interesting some it, directions it in, went in general uh it's pessimism so yeah, I mean, you're not expecting any sort of solution anytime soon. No, no, no. There, there is, there's going to have to be something big that changes. And in order for that big thing to happen, I do think that two things would need to occur. Um, some kind of organized information campaign from the players towards fans. 
getting and understanding getting them involved is one of the strongest things that they can do like thinking about you know as i said I do do more and more labor history these days and things like that and the number one way that strikes were able to work when striking was really effective in u.s history was towns got involved always towns got involved and because you know these these people worked for the towns it was a part of the culture and and once towns got involved in addition to players more it was more common that employers buckled right to be able to do these things so you can't ignore people listening to this podcast like the players association can't ignore the consumer public to be able to do this and the other thing that would need to occur is fans actually would need to understand the financials of the baseball game and or like finances of baseball organizations how pay works they would need to understand all of the thorny issues that we would be able to nerd out about on a podcast or be able to write about on bp or something like that and there's a not an appetite for it and b the books are closed yeah i do think that there is a little bit of sentiment going even into the mainstream uh jeff passon talked about this on a recent podcast with kevin goldstein uh, that there is a there's an attitude amongst fans that he wasn't necessarily expecting that he's seeing a lot of people taking note of the fact that this is a lockout, not a strike, and that this is the owners deciding to keep the players out. And that is working to their advantage in terms of public relations at this point. And that is uh, people people have taken note of that. Your general run of the mill fans yeah. have taken note of that. Yeah, I mean, I that is, I would say, the smallest of wins. It um, is, but if, MLB if has also had win. some other unforced errors here, like the way that they just weirdly like turned the uh, MLB.com uh, into, like, a, a, I don't even know, like an archive of shit from the 80s. Like, that was weird, and people were put off by that. The, the Ken Rosenthal thing with MLB, did you hear about this with MLB Network? No. Oh, you didn't hear about this? MLB Network let Ken Rosenthal go, and the New York Post reported that it was because he leveled some mild criticism at Rob Manfred back in 2020, and Rob didn't like that, so they decided not to renew his contract and got rid of him. And basically everybody in baseball media all jumped in because Ken Rosenthal is such a universally liked and respected reporter. Mm -hmm. uh, basically everybody jumped in and said, oh, you've just absolutely stepped, you know, on your own dick here, basically. Like you, you have screwed this up so badly and you just look really bad. MLB has done a number of stupid things in this negotiation and over the past yeah over the past couple of years with their negotiations with the union that I, I have some optimism. I, I don't think it's necessarily going to get the players everything they want, but I think they're in a, a stronger relative position than maybe you do. Yeah. Um, I'm not optimistic about too much these days. <laughs> so that should also be said. Um, yeah. Well, there's that both in terms of, uh, you know, yeah, it, about about many things um but my reaction would be if you've got a 30 goal lead you can afford to have a few own goals and no one cares and it doesn't matter sure 
The question is, can the union chip back some of that? They're not going to get back everything in, in this, but can they get some significant movement going the other way? And more importantly, get some things in place that over time could start to work to their advantage. That's going to be hard. The owners are not, the owners are not run by idiots. They're not going to give up anything that is going to, you know, severely change the, the playing field in the player's favor down the road. Um, well, and and the other big thing that happens is there is an assumption amongst any negotiations because it is perceived that this is a this is a a negotiation amongst equals, right? And negotiation, and this is something that the, that you you'll see pushed hard. I would I would guess in once the, the MLBPA comes out with their proposal, is that any any kind of concession on the owner side has to come with a concession from the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've talked about this going back to, you know, all, all of our history with MKE tailgate that, you know, that there is this assumption that it has to be, we're trading this for that. And mm-hmm. I think that the players, what they're trying to do here is they're saying, no, what we're trading is our willingness to play baseball games. That's what they're that is a chip that they are putting on the table here and saying, no, unless you give us something substantive and unless you make real progressive changes here that are going to benefit, you know, our agenda, we are not going to be willing to come back. And so then we have to see how how well that holds up, because that's going to be a game of chicken, right? That's how long can MLB wait that out? How well positioned are they to wait that out? And as of right now, it doesn't really matter because the NFL is going on mm-hmm. and nobody's paying any attention. I am relatively like as much as I don't necessarily follow uh, baseball news as much these days. I am still editing at a baseball uh, website and like regularly write on this stuff. And I had no idea that anything happened with Ken Rosenthal. So I'm not necessarily sure how deep that went outside of like some baseball writers and like folks who follow a bunch of baseball writers on Twitter. Um, sure. So like I, I take your point and I think that you're exactly right, that there are things that need to be put in place and you're exactly right. in saying that this is not going to be an all or nothing situation. And what it is, is about creating positive movement, but is also creating expectations that, this is not it. Right. And because, you know, I'm on the podcast, I can talk, I can do whatever I want for history. So Samuel Goppers used to say that what you had to do was the big labor leader from late 19th, early 20th century. Well, I know who um, he is. Used to say that what he wanted to bring to the table was a culture of more, which functionally meant we are going to ask for something today. And when we get it, you will expect that we will be back tomorrow asking for something more mm-hmm. that this is not a single negotiation and this is not a single moment, but this is a comp- a broader movement towards kind of equality. Um, and that MLBPA needs to be able to have a moment and be in a position where everybody in the organization understands that this is something that exists now, but this is also something that is going to continue to build going forward. And when these players retire, they are still going to be passing on 
this kind of movement culture for the future. And we see this in little, you know, like we see this, what was it? Latroy Hawkins or, or whatever, like for the Brewers, like once kind of, was it Tim Dillard or somebody else like pulled up, pulled him aside in was like, you know, do you have any suits for our, for, I don't remember if it was like, you know, just kind of an away day or pictures or some kind of event. Oh, or sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And, and basically, you know, I think it, I think it was Tim Dillard and he said, no, I don't. And Latroy Hawkins said, you know, like, basically, let's go. I'm going to buy you a few suits. And Latroy Hawkins said something to the effect of somebody did this for me um, mm-hmm. when I first got in there. And this is my way of welcoming you not only into the big leagues, but also our bullpen. And this is my way to do this. And that kind of sentiment, I think, can also be broadened um, and thinking about it much, much more broadly in terms of what the players association can bring to everybody. And of course there are going to be factions within it, but um, I think you, you are correct, but also like baseball fans need to understand what that conversation is too. Um, I'm less optimistic about that um, in terms of just kind of like broader understanding because just, I don't think there's been any effort to cultivate it. I mean, there has been among our particular corner of the world, our internet baseball culture that we have uh, that has existed, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years, there has been a a building of an understanding of those sorts of things. And I think that it does, I think it has had ripples to the larger world. I'm not saying that it's been a complete sea change, but like, I think it has had ripples to the, the outside world in ways that are tangible. I think that the the way that uh, ownership is talked about is very different. Uh, Kevin Goldstein, a couple weeks ago, him and Passon were talking about, if you go back and read some of the stuff archived from the 94, 95 strike, um, that kind of crap would never fly. Now, a reporter would get hounded mercilessly uh, for writing anything close to that, um, to, to just totally side with the owners and and yeah. you know put it all on the players shoulders and all that sort of stuff they would they would be hounded mercilessly and that does matter and they are they are put in a position to have to listen and have to be more even-handed with the, uh with the reporting than they used to be so there has yeah. been progress on that front but it's yeah i mean i think that's right uh I mean, I would also encourage you to go to any comment section on any BP article that has been written about the labor or the labor strike. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know. you're you're always going to find assholes no matter where you go. But yeah. And I mean, also, like, just like we can't necessarily discount the size of people that are having more progressive ideas on this, we can't necessarily kind of just assume that voices we don't like are in the minority. Right. Or like that they don't necessarily matter and they don't count, right? Or they're not representative of a broader movement as well. Um, so I think it's I think it's there are both things there, um, and I think that I would like to necessarily I would like to see broader kind of organizational movement um, from the MLBPA, and maybe that'll happen this week or next week or whenever it's going to be happening. Um, you know, but the silence thus far and the silence over the past couple of years has not been encouraging on that front because they had two years to get ready for this. Well, I think they they were, I think they've been, they've been doing it behind the scenes. I mean, they had two years to prime people for it, not themselves. Okay. And they, and they never showed an interest in it. 
yeah, I think that that part of it is that's valid and we'll see what that ends up meaning to the to the broader conversation as a whole. So, all right, yeah. we've been we've been going at this for a half hour on this topic. We got uh a lot of other stuff we're going to have to work through quickly here. So, um just a, a couple of other things. I don't know. Did you see that literally as we were logging on, the Brewers hired former Phillies GM Matt Clentock as a special assistant? He forego yeah. the last year of his contract in Philadelphia where he had still been working, even though he wasn't the GM anymore. <laughs> mean anything to you? Uh, no. <laughs> so uh, I, I apologize for not having any more. I mean, what is, what is your thought on it? I uh, literally, I don't know that much about him. I know he tends more to the scouting side. Uh, he was one of those guys that was kind of still left in the game. And the Philadelphia organization has a lot of that. And I think that those are very valuable people to have around and be part of your decision-making team. And so it, it seems like it's probably a, a good move to add depth to their their top-end brain trust. So I wouldn't expect him to get the top job ever here. I think that somebody like Matt Arnold would definitely be ahead of him in the pecking order for that should David Stearns decide to leave at some point. But you can never have too many smart people around to help in making decisions. And he seems like he probably does a pretty good job of, uh, yeah, especially on the scouting side. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't necessarily know much about him. I've just looking at uh, a few different things here on, on his Wikipedia page to try to get a little bit more of a background on him. Um, you know, went to Dartmouth. So that, oh. that, uh, that fits with um, all the stereotypes about any GMs uh, <laughs> coming up. So that's good. But I mean, did he play at Dartmouth? Bit... Did it say he played? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Okay. Uh, hold on. Let me. Yeah. Uh, starting shortstop for three years. Okay. Um, got a bachelor's degree in economics. So again, fits with everything anyone's <laughs> ever been saying. It's right down um, the line. <laughs> so good. Uh, but what I would say, and this is completely unfair, and I will say that I don't know, I, I don't know anything about him and what his ideas are. Um, but in 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 the interest of banter which this is what we're here for a podcast for. Somebody said he was with the Rockies, Orioles, Angels, and Phillies. Okay, great. <laughs> wow, that is sort of a rogues gallery, isn't it? Not a... What I would say is he's never really been in charge at any of those places, so... That at least gives me a little bit more hope. Well, he was he was the GM in Philly, though he did have uh, on he had a, a president of baseball ops on top of him, I believe. So, yeah, I believe so. And the Phillies were kind of derided for a long time of being kind of like slower to the analytics movement, and that was kind of unfair in some ways. But at the same time, you know, by the time he was there, what was it twenty fifteen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20, well, so 2016 season. I mean, by that time, Lord knows that they were into that. Like, it's not like they were still kind of neglecting the analytics side, if anybody ever was. But, um, so what, so was he assistant general manager when the Angels got Mike Trout? Uh, I don't know, 2009. So I'm, I'm not sure. You're looking at the timeline, oh, not me. Nope. 
Nope. nope. Okay. Well, so then he doesn't get credit for that. Nope. Well, I was trying to give him one. <laughs> uh, all right. So moving on to the next topic of discussion here. Uh, longtime beat writer for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Tom Hottercourt, decided to hang it up this week. And uh, he had been with first, I think he was with the Journal, uh, the Sentinel originally. And then through the merger, he did a brief sojourn. He worked for one of those many newspapers in New Jersey covering the Yankees for a brief time. But then he came back to Milwaukee and has been the the dean of baseball writers in this city as long as I've been following the team closely. Um, so thoughts on that? It's definitely going to be a big change. Yeah, uh, I don't have. I mean, I think anybody being able to have an opportunity to enjoy retirement is great. Um, so I hope he enjoys it. I, I know that, uh, you know, his time, he has done a lot of things in terms of kind of like moving the Brewers beat writer experience to the social media age, which was not for somebody who had been doing it for a long time, an easy thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. right. Like get used to all of those things. And so I also can tell that he's been, you know, like with Adam McKelvey and whatnot, he's been a great mentor, um, being able to help kind of shepherd him into that, that scenario as well. So I, I hope he enjoys his, his retirement and, uh, and yeah. And I know that there's been some contentiousness there's always going to be around it. He can have a, a prickly personality sometimes. And like he blocked Steve on Twitter for some argument over, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, Corey Hart was what got Steve blocked and that became a whole thing for us. So, but there was definitely, I think if you looked at what he was doing in the mid two thousands, he had this sort of um, stalwart stand against history, the, the progress of what was going on. He had that vibe to him and that was evident in things like his, his hall of fame voting, his MVP voting, um, just some of the the ways he he addressed things. And there was actually sort of a famous uh, thing where him and Keith Law got into an argument and Law basically told him, well, you're covering the sport. Your job is to be a reporter. Shouldn't you keep up on what's going on in the sport? And from that time forward, it seemed like he took a different approach and was much more. And it really became noticeable, really became noticeable when David Stearns came in and took over that. Hodricourt became open to uh, a lot of the, the things that Stearns was talking about and um, it, it was doing a, a good job and moving the team forward on. And you could really see that there was a buy-in from Hodricourt. And I think oftentimes you will see people in the media and people generally just not wanting to change with the times and not wanting to, you know, you, you grew up doing things a certain way and you don't want to change. And I think everybody has that in various you know, facets of their life and to Hodricourt's credit, he absolutely did. So I think that that is a, a big deal and he deserves a lot of um, commendation for that, for, for updating his thinking and being, you know, up to date with what the, the current thought processes were in the game right up until the end. So I, I think I very much appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult to try to report on an organization and be an expert into 
kind of the operations and thought processes within that organization if you're not willing to change. Yep. Right. I think it's very, very difficult to be able to do that. Um, this is a kind of a, a sideways angle, but I think your almost exact description is what you could also say for rock on the telecast. Oh, I absolutely. I think that yeah. is exactly what and, I would say about rock on the telecast. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a credit to most likely people in the organization um, being able to convey these things effectively but the other reason that I would, obviously, you know, we're from the we're speaking from the outside and, and not pretending to know what people's thoughts are, but um, it becomes very, very difficult to dig your heels in and be resistant to analytical approaches to the game when they are new and unfamiliar. When you have an organization that is moving in that direction and using that language and having success becomes very, very difficult to say that those things are not valid or worthwhile. Um, and if those things are having success, it is kind of incumbent upon, you know, the journalists that are being able to cover those to, to be able to accurately reflect what, what is happening. You don't necessarily have to understand everything. You don't have to agree with everything. Um, but being kind of like swimming in that water, at some point, some things kind of rub off on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be some intellectual curiosity there. You have to be willing to to learn new things, even if, like you said, it's not necessarily about getting in and, and knowing exactly how the sausage is made, but just having sort of a general idea of what's going on there is is very important for somebody to be able to do a good job covering the team. Anything well, and like I do that? think that it, to bring this back to the, the Matt Klintak thing, like there has been an overarching level of success within the Brewers organization, particularly with Stearns at the helm, uh, with counsel at the helm in terms of being manager, that at some level you just kind of default to giving the benefit of the doubt to who's running it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because is that analytically lazy or whatever? And people are just like, bah, all you're going to do is just like shill for whoever. Like all you're going to do is just be like, well, I guess that they know better than I do. But on some level, if you've been proven that over a long period of time, that's a good place to start until you're proven differently. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And so I think that there's also probably a piece of that. Like my overarching thought on, on Matt Klantek is, um, reading a quick bio it it seems like he is absolutely bringing uh there are going to be differences they're bringing him in for a reason but it also seems like they're he's bringing a voice that they already have to the table um or at least a, a background that is common um and whether or not that's kind of uh succession planning or whether or not you know, whatever that looks like, I don't necessarily know whether or not he's coming in with new database in mind, whether they're looking at uh, something new for scouting, whether they're looking at being able to kind of maybe he's become an expert in in, you know, a certain kind of uh, contract negotiations or whatever. Like, I don't necessarily know what what it is, but at some level you become an organization and you are like, we want to be able to do this thing and we can go and target and get the best person that we think does this thing. Uh, and they are going to kind of fit into our organizational culture. And so my feeling is they probably know what they've got. They probably are bringing in somebody that they feel like is going to fit in. Um, 
you always run a risk of of kind of just bringing more people in into the team that uh, kind of just do exactly what you do, and that can just kind of become self reinforcing. But if what you're doing works, you tend to kind of want to keep on that on that train. So overarching, I think kind of whether it's my ideas about Clintech or whether it's about kind of your discussion of Hodricourt, I think it's largely a reflection on the brewers having success over a long period of time in their in their system and their organizational culture and and that more and more people have just kind of including me have just kind of gotten to the point that i just kind of assume that they're doing something that like makes sense um yeah that that's not like a profound point but no it, it's well taken though it it makes perfect sense so all right, moving on to uh, some Patreon questions here. Um, and I know you said that you hadn't taken in-depth looks at, at any of this stuff yet. So uh, let's just kind of move through some of it. Uh, Jay Google asks, Zip's projections came out on fan graphs, and it shows that first base works out to about one win above replacement. Do you think that's low? And are there any other players or positions that seem high or low? Basically, what he's doing is looking at the fact that that's where they sort of have um, Rowdy Tellez at first base, and then they also have uh, Mike Brousseau, who they got from the the Rays earlier in the offseason, right before things shut down, and Keston Hira is still there and presumably could be in the mix at first base slash DH should the negotiations go that direction. So anything about this stand out to you in terms of the projections there or not really? I will say that uh, we should wait for Pakoda to come out. <laughs> when is that happening, JP? Sooner rather than later. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the exact date on me. I just know it's coming out soon. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I was going to say, I, I, because I was like, oh, I should look at what they are. And I was like, oh, they're not out yet. Never mind. <laughs> um, but I, I forgot about Mike Purcell. I, he annihilates lefties. And he's a former Ray. So, you know, that fits with pretty much everything that they've been doing. You know what else he has, JP? Uh, Options. No, he's got options. <laughs> well, they, I mean, sure. I mean, it's just he was we joked about this when that move came across that it was like the uh, the bingo card for uh, David Stern's acquisitions. Like he checked all the boxes. You could just go straight down and be like, yep, he's that he's that he's that. So. I guess I don't necessarily know this and this could like get into a, I don't mean to open a Pandora's box here. Um, what are you looking at in terms of, of Kesson hero this year? Like what I wanted to take the temperature on that. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely not super optimistic just because we've now seen him really bottom out last year. And yes, there was, a lot of personal stuff going on there. And so I don't know exactly if I should be as pessimistic as I am. I probably should be less pessimistic than I am, but there's also the issue of he's not a second baseman anymore. We know that he's been moved off of that and he's not going back any place up the middle anytime soon. Cause I, I don't think he has the speed athleticism um, or arm to play center field. And so he's not going to be a, a center fielder. He's definitely not a shortstop or a second baseman. 
So you're looking at a guy who is going to be a first baseman slash maybe a left fielder. Because I don't think he has the he definitely he doesn't have the arm for right. So the slash DH. So the bar for his offense is now super high. He needs to be an insane masher of the baseball. And he was in 2019. Remember that it seems like a lifetime ago now, but uh, Mm -hmm. he was an insane masher of the baseball back then. And he would have been perfectly fine with those 2019 numbers at first base. But I'm just not very optimistic we ever see that guy again. So I guess I'm I'm sort of uncertain, like what role he even has with this team. I think there's probably a good case to be made that he needs a change of scenery. And needs to go someplace else, get some different voices, though, maybe having new pitching coach or sorry, new hitting coaches with the Brewers, maybe that unlocks something. So, you know, it, it would be the same organization, but maybe different voices coming at him could unlock something. But I, I guess I'm just not generally very optimistic. Yeah, because I just don't necessarily... I don't know. To, to me, he's a, a really interesting. He's a really interesting case study in terms of like. Kind of the human side of baseball, because I think a, a lot of what you see his struggles, like where his struggles have emanated from, it's. It, it, it seems a lot of like, yeah, it's high fastballs. And yeah, it's like being able to swing and miss. But in 2019, when he had a bunch of successes, his, his like strikeout rate was over 30%. He was still mashing baseballs all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So like the idea that suddenly he like forgot how to like make contact with the baseball. And that's the real reason 2019, he was doing that too. And he was able to make a lot of really hard contact on balls that he actually was able to put in play. And then he kind of just completely lost how to do that. And I was really fascinated, and this is something I talked about on on the Tino podcast last year, is I was really fascinated by his admission several times that he was like, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And there's there's an extreme human side of being elite at a sport over a long period of time for your entire life. And he's always, and he said like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and... I apologize if my memory on this is, is bad, but he basically said like what I always did in a slump is I got up and I swung my way out of it because I was a good hitter. And mm-hmm. I just like always got up and I swung and eventually I like figured it out. And this, it was like the first time in his not just professional career, but like baseball career that he was like, I don't know what to do when I don't know what's wrong. And in some level that is, that's like a psychological thing that you're like, as soon as he said that there was a lot of this where I was just kind of like, you know, like skills will win out over a long period of time. Like the guy who was a great hitter his entire life didn't suddenly become terrible in like, you know, a month. And then all of a sudden he's bad now. Like that doesn't even make any sense. Um, But once you kind of got into hearing what he was saying about it and just kind of this, like it overall admission that he was like, I don't know what I, I don't know what to do. Um, And I don't know what's wrong. Like that was the moment that I actually got pretty concerned that this is like a long-term thing. And I'd be really interested to see what he's able to do in spring training this year. If there's a spring training or kind of, you know, the beginning of when they actually start playing baseball games again. But at the same time, I wanted to also say like, I wanted to bring, bring it up for you. Like, is this, 
all that different from like Gene Segura. Like Gene Segura was awesome for like three months and then mm-hmm. was really good for like a month and a half and then was bad for like two years. And everybody functionally was like, wow, this guy sucks now. And it was like, well, I mean, not me. I never gave up. Well, yeah. I mean, and so like, there's also that in the back of my mind. And there's also like, there's the Mike Moustakis thing where you're like, he's this highly regarded prospect and came up and was successful his entire life. And then suddenly he got to the big leagues and it like took him three years to really find it and click. So my biggest thing is I don't, I like, I don't know what to think about him. I also like, I've talked to people in the game that were like, if they were, if they weren't concerned about his elbow for the draft, that he would have gone one, one that they were like, literally no one had a question about his bat. Yeah. And I've also heard Keith law says that he's talked to people within the game who just openly will say, what the hell did the Brewers do to his swing? They completely fucked it up. And so, which like then has like a Brett Lowry feel to it, not with the Brewers, but like, Basically, that was the response when he went to what is it, uh, Toronto? Toronto? Yeah. When basically they tried to change his swing, and then everyone like looked at it and was like, "What did you do?" Mm-hmm. Um, and he was never really able to find his way back out of that either. Um, and but then there's like I don't know, maybe on the other side of it too, there's the Carlos Gomez situation where everyone is like, for for years, like everyone told me to do this and do this and do this and do this, and then he went to the Brewers and was like, "I just want to do what I do, and I just want to do it." Mm-hmm. Well, and in fairness, it took eventually because it took three years to get to that point. Absolutely. Who's in his third season with them before they actually let him just be go-go. Yeah. And like, even then it was kind of up and down. Right. But he has like, he had his spectacular moments. Um, and so I'm really interested to see what, what Hira does. I like, I, I'm really interested in the psychological piece of it though. And I really, there, there is like a moment in in kind of like watching somebody develop over a long period of time within one organization and kind of trying to follow it closely. And you don't normally hear players just kind of like open up in an interview and just be like, I'm, I'm lost, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And well, I think a lot of that had to do with the personal things that were going on, too. Like, yeah, I think he just 100 percent. I mean, the world is screwed up, is screwed up. You know, it like that was going on. He had the thing with his mom's cancer diagnosis and she is cancer free now. So that is wonderful and big thumbs up on that. But like, yeah, dude had a lot of stuff going on. And I think that getting back to a previous point that I made, like where where Keith Law talks about how his his swing is screwed up now. Right. Like the brewer screwed up his swing. Well, yeah, but that screwed up swing also produced that amazing 2019 run in the big leagues where he was, you know, 40% better than the league but, average in terms of hitting. But like also when people say his swing is messed up now or the Brewers messed up his swing or whatever, like I haven't heard that and that's interesting to me. Um but I have I have heard people being like even, you know, like again, right? People in the game being like what happened? Um and you're like, "Well, what's wrong? Like what is wrong? Like what is the thing about the swing that is bad?" And people are like, I don't know like I, and I haven't followed up on that in quite a long time. I've got, I've got my own, I've got my own theories about it, but like, I'm not, I'm stupid. So 
I think the general thing about that is that um, it is very much a a pull only swing, and it like he he just does not have any flexibility to stay in the zone very long, and it's this uppercut and which makes it impossible for him to adjust to anything high in the zone. And so it just like, it's very limited. The ball has to be at a very specific spot for him to do any damage to it because he just can't adjust I the mean, swing to right, which do different is, things with it. Yeah. Which is like my gut reaction with it as well. Right. Like it just, you see him swing through enough high fastballs and it's not like not rocket science to kind of figure out what's going on. Right. Like it, in mm -hmm. terms of trying to look at it. But at the same time, if that it's hard for me to get to a place where I would understand if that is that anyone would gear his swing to do that. Like the idea that the Brewers were like, you know what you should do is add more loft to your swing and get to a place where all you can do is handle this one pitch to, you know, to the, to the pole side. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and whether or not that's like a, a vision issue in terms of just like pitch recognition or, or not having the flexibility to do these things or kind of like as soon as you do things for one time and and you change something completely maybe you lose your feel but at the same time like we've also seen like cody bellinger just like suddenly be able to struggle over a long period mm -hmm. of time where you're like all you have to do is just throw him a high fastball and he has a prayer mm -hmm. um and do we suddenly think that he's not being like he's that he can't be fixed and well, and also Christian Yelich. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I wrote something on Christian Yelich for for BP about a month ago, in which I was basically like, I have no idea what's going on because all the narratives about him make no sense. Um, and I was like, ultimately, I think what it comes down to is he's hurt or he got hurt. Like, is the only thing that makes sense to me because mm -hmm. all the stuff about him not being able to hit the ball any hard anymore is I was like, in 2020, all he could do was hit the ball hard over the fence, and now suddenly in 2021, he like can't, and everyone's like, well, ever since you know he. He can't hit the ball hard anymore. And you're like, well, literally just go back a year ago. Mm -hmm. And you were saying the exact opposite thing. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and like the exit velocity stuff doesn't make any sense. The launch angle stuff doesn't make any sense. And so like, I just am confused on what's going on with that. Um, and but for Kesson Hura to kind of put a my last thought on it is like. I'm really interested in in the notion that all of these hitters, whether it's Eric Hosmer, whether God, we've got countless guys over a long period of time. All they got to do is be able to change their launch angle and they can all of a sudden become great hitters. That's all they got to do. They can switch it and they can find the, they can find, you know, the, the, the feel for it. And suddenly that makes them great. Right. But suddenly when somebody tries to make that switch to a, to a different launch angle, and I'm not even hundred percent sure if that's what was going on with, with Hira, but based on what you're saying, sounds like that was a kind of a launch angle thing is but like once you do that you can like never not do that like that doesn't really make any sense to me um but at the same time i can just see i can see a lot of arguments and a lot of ex kind of examples throughout you know even the last like decade of baseball when when following it really really closely is like you've also just seen guys lose it and just can't get it back mm-hmm yeah, there's a certain amount of that that goes on. Um, all right, so moving on, we have uh, uh, let's do some some quick questions here. Um, 
Brian Polakowski asks, do you see any uh, likelihood that there are replacement players this uh, spring? Personally, I think it's very unlikely. I I don't have a good enough feel for that to have any sense. Okay. So I, mean, I, in, I, in, I don't know. I don't okay. know enough on it. Yeah. And the way he's asking, it would be talking about like players coming in and playing spring training games in the team uniforms, in the team parks, uh, presumably to get the the ownership there uh, to fulfill their contracts, to provide spring training games to their the 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 leases that they've signed. And I, I don't think that the players you're not going to find enough players willing to cross the line to do that. And so I, I don't think it's very likely, but um, all right. Um, we actually just had an extended discussion about this. PJ Wessels is asking um, who sees the most played appearances with the Brewers in 2022 Keston hero or Bryce Terang. I think it's pretty clearly hero. What about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. I mean, if it's Terang, either something has gone very, very right or very, very wrong. <laughs> like that would be yeah. that would be a surprise. So, yeah. Yeah. Some. Yeah. There would have to be a lot that would have to happen for Bryce Terang to be that. There would have to be a combination of things going very right and very wrong. Mm, yeah, he would have to be really good and there'd have to be a lot of injuries or God knows well, what else happening. And Hero would have like Hero would have to be bad. Luis Urias would have to like get get injured or be bad. Like Willie Damas would have to be like injured or bad. There would just have to be so many different things that would have to happen for that to to come to fruition. Now, I also see a scenario in which Kesson Hero is um, traded before opening day, and Bryce Terang comes up and has like two plate appearances in September, and he wins that way. So, like, there mm-hmm. are other scenarios, but I. I think the question is like, assuming both guys are with the team the entire year, both of them are playing. Who do you think is going to be like more successful? That's, that's how I take the question. Yeah. And yes, I think that I mentioned, I think there is a decent chance that Keston here gets traded. If they just are like, okay, you need to change the scenery. Let's do this. And sort of as a, as a favor to him, but who knows? Um, also PJ asked, uh, is Devin Williams new pitch, something, uh, exciting or just meh. And he included a link here and I will put it into the show notes so that you can look at this too, um, to Reddit. And, uh, we both looked at that and we said, yeah, that looks like a cutter. It's kind of hard to tell. Cause it's from behind the pitcher's mound, um, in wherever he's doing this. I don't know if that's driveline or wherever that is, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I say it doesn't look like it has enough tilt to be a real slider. So, I mean, it could be a little mini slider, but it looks like a cutter. Um, and the fact that he says it's kind of his new toy, I'm interested in that. But at the same time, is that like, I don't necessarily, we always hear things about people working with new pitches. The fact that he put it on social media means he actually kind of likes it, is, is my sense. Um, I also think based on very, very anecdotal data that uh, cutters are way more easier, like way more easier, brilliant. They, they are easier to, uh, to kind of develop a feel for and bring to game action more quickly, right? So mm-hmm. the sense that like 
he could throw cutters this year. Yeah, I could absolutely. I could see that. Well, and we've seen that organizationally with the Brewers. They've had a number of pitchers who've been able to add cutters, you know, infamously Corbin Burns, uh, becoming his primary fastball, really, that he he pitches off of instead of the four-seamer, and also Jeremy Jeffress and even Wade Miley. Like, these were all guys who kind of, and granted, this was in sort of a different era of the Brewers' coaching uh, for those other guys, that was Derek Johnson. But a lot of the same people are still around in the organization working on the stuff. Chris Hook was in the organization at that time. So, well, it's 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 also like it's not just Brewers bound either, right? Like it is just kind of a broader phenomenon because I think one of the big things that you found out is that traditionally everything was like, oh, if you have something breaking out, you know, as a righty, if you have something breaking out away from righties, that is something that helps kind of what you're already good at. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is kind of the same handed thing. But what is really started to transpire over the, you know, I don't know, like Wade Miley wasn't the person who invented it, but Wade Miley is the person who comes to mind where you're just like, that was how he started to dominate righties is that was his, that was his pitch. And it was, it was to be able to throw a fastball, but be able to just bury it on somebody's hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if that is something much more kind of, tilted towards lefties which is something that i think if you were telling somebody this 15 years ago nobody would believe you Hmm. okay like not just because like oh cutters would never but like 15 years ago not only were like the conventional sabermetrics wisdom was don't throw a cutter because you're gonna blow your elbow Mm -hmm. it was also like your platoon splits on opposite hand it was all dependent upon a changeup, and you've now seen that change based on high fastballs and cutters that that is you can also kind of work your platoon that way um so i don't know it's nice to see somebody pitch though Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) it is and it's also nice to see him just pitching in general considering you know last we saw of him he was breaking his hand and sitting in the dugout with uh david stearns like a very bad child um that the look on his face that was that was bad yeah i hope he's when when Devin Williams is is going right and dominating pitchers um, or <laughs> dominating hitters, uh, it's a good day. All right. So Adam Post asks, "What is the baseball equivalent to bad special teams? A bad bullpen? <laughs> uh, it's a terrible running game. Terrible running game. Wait, no, the baseball equivalent. Yeah, like on on the base pass." Oh, okay. A bad running game. Okay. Um, th- interesting. I was going to go with poor defense, like just, you know, bad defenders. But is it, wouldn't that, wouldn't that literally just be the baseball equivalent of defense? No, because run prevention is more about pitchers than it is the defense. And I think that, uh, so I, the reason I thought defense was because it's one of those things that like, Nobody really pays much attention to until there's like problems until you see guys like hemorrhaging, you like making, you know, making errors, making bad plays, not getting to baseballs. Like until you see that nobody pays any attention to it when it's functioning. Everybody's just like, okay, great. That's fine. No, I wasn't invested in this question. Now I'm invested. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If that's the criteria, if that's the criteria is, is absolutely imagine the like overlap between how many people complain about the third base coach sending people when they shouldn't be sent 
and how many people just sit and complain about special teams all day. That is a circle. <laughs> that is the same thing. <laughs> but like the running game goes beyond that too. It's also right. Like, are you picking spots to run at the right time? Like, are you being able to kind of like take advantage of things? And this is kind of built off of what Darius Austin's been able to do at BP recently. I have like now edited probably like 35 articles on, on, uh, on stolen bases now that I've like started to think way more about that. But it's like special teams has always to me felt like something that everybody just kind of assumes everybody does the exact same way until you have somebody that is does something bad. And then it's just like an, like it's an all time scapegoat. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the defensive thing too. I think it's a bigger part of the game than just base running. Base running is a relatively small I think, part yeah, of the game. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I think you are, you are ascribing too much emphasis to special teams because of what you just witnessed last night. Well, it, to be fair, it was all year. I mean, they cataloged this all year on the, the RAE podcast. It, it was disastrous all year. There were, there were four or five games this season where special teams, like, seriously jeopardized a win and last night it actually cost the game which was the the thing that was feared all but along. you could you would never ever ever say that about defense like there is never like a situation in which like you're like wow bad defense Ooh, that probably cost us like it got close to costing us a bunch of times but it cost us like once or twice you mean defense like, on the baseball field yeah oh yeah people would say that all the time yeah when you have like somebody one or make two games like making like big like big errors in critical moments yeah you'd see that people talk about that all the time people well people would talk about that all the time but way more than like cost us one game like the idea oh, sure that, sure sure like, okay i see what you're saying the, there was like this idea that like you know you watch one person make an error once and that's like literally anything everybody talks about for like two months yeah i mean it yes the the avasil garcia misplay in right field yeah, that was that ended a game at one point. But, you could, but yeah, OK, but you could see like Ed Cedar send somebody badly once or twice. And then suddenly every time that there was like a close play, okay, it was fair. like, did Ed Cedars do it right? Or who should he have sent him or not? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Ed Cedar probably doesn't matter that much. No, other than the fact that he was like, by all accounts, a really good guy around the clubhouse. Right. And that's the big part. That's what those guys main job is, is to be coaches in other aspects and not yeah. just like that part of the game, which is what people judge a third base coach entirely by and is really yeah. in in actuality, maybe what they spend 5% of their time on. So yeah. it's just the, the part that people see. So, all right. Anyway, um, Ted Johnson asks, would you rather have Council or LaFleur in the playoffs? Uh, I'm assuming in their respective sports and not the football playoffs. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, if we're playing baseball, I would like to have Craig Council. If we're playing football, I would like to have Matt LaFleur. But yeah. I don't think that's what he's asking. Okay. Uh, I don't know enough about LaFleur to have an opinion on that. Well, I think he uh, has the best winning percentage of any NFL coach after three years in uh, league history. And I mean, yes, he, he has some pretty talented players on his team, but that's still pretty good. Um, but yeah, I think Craig Council's special. I don't know that we've seen enough from Lafleur to know that he is special as a manager or as a as a coach. I think we can say that with Council that he's pretty special. So 
uh, give me counsel. Also, I care a lot more about the breweries than I do about Matt LaFleur. So if I'm choosing one, I think both are pretty good at their jobs. So give me the guy on the team I care more about. I mean, but I think Craig Council is an excellent manager. So I would I would imagine my answer is him. But again, I'm going to I'll plead the fifth on that. I don't I don't know enough. All right. So um, just real quickly here. Um, PB Brew Crew asks, which AL team would you think would be the most fun matchup for the Brewers in the World Series? Oh, good. Oh, sorry. We skipped a few and I got confused on what we were reading. What's your answer to that? Um, I was thinking about it and like, I don't know, fun. Uh, a fun team for me right now that the Brewers could face would be one with a lot of right-handed pull hitters who would get eaten alive by the Brewers' wonderful right-handed pitchers. So I that would be good. That would be fun for me. I don't know who that team is, but that would be fun mm-hmm. for me, a team built around right-handed pull hitters. Sure. Uh, I wasn't taking fun in that way. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, cause like the immediate things that came to my head were like Tampa Bay. So you could like have all the memes of like Spider-Man pointing at each other and be like, you, uh, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> it's like two teams that are like doing the same thing. And you um, could literally watch the heads explode of, you know, your the people that uh, do the baseball uh, ratings trolling. Like that would just be the end of times. A, a Milwaukee Tampa Bay World Series would just be for ratings, and then for people complaining about the ratings, and then people complaining about the people complaining about the ratings. That would just be end time stuff right there. All right. Well, I didn't even know that like ratings trolling was a thing, but that oh, it is. That's good. oh, it very much is. Especially uh, NFL, uh, certain sorts of NFL writers love to do it. They to, lo- like prove super- to prove superiority of sports. Mm-hmm. They do. Yes. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Sounds fun. Um, <laughs> wonder what happens when you put all uh, all of a baseball team's games on a network nobody has. Um. <laughs> Not that we just experienced that. Um, I don't know. Did you get Bally's? Mm-hmm. I do. Oh, okay. My parents didn't have it and they were like really upset all year. Um, no, so I pay the cable bill. Yeah. Well, there you go. I would think so. Tampa in terms of just like everyone being able to talk about how these are like the two teams doing the same thing and trying to like parse that out. I think that would be entertaining. Um, I really want the Mariners to be good. Mm-hmm. Like, I just like really want the Mariners to be good. Mm-hmm. Just because they'd be st- like a scenario in which they're good is like. You'd have Kalanick obviously being able to come up like Julio Rodriguez would probably be there. Mm-hmm. You would have Marco Gonzalez doing well. And I could like I could be like really jazzed about like a really consistent fourth starter pitching game one. That'd be fun. I'd like really enjoy that because everybody would be like, he's really great. And you're like, he's like really just solid, but I really dig that. And yeah, that's my answer. Okay. Maybe, maybe Evan white would like do a thing. That'd be, you mean besides defense. I'm not even sure he does that anymore. (laughs) That's been tough, man. It's been, it's been a, it's been a tough go for Evan white. Yeah, well, he can uh, wipe away his tears with his millions and millions of dollars. So, well, 
doesn't bring you it doesn't bring you all the happiness in the world no it doesn't uh, but you know it's better than not having the millions of dollars can confirm uh and like like mitch hanniger would be great like i've really enjoyed him just because he was he was a former brewer and i would really enjoy that i would hope kyle lewis would be able to come back from from all his injury problems to be able to to have a productive year mm-hmm. um there's a lot of a lot of players that I really like on the Mariners. And the other scenario is that that would mean like Depoto would have to make like 74 trades. Mm-hmm. And just like that, I think would be fun for him. <laughs> like I, it would just like it would bring him a lot of joy in his heart, I feel. And yeah. So I think the Mariners are my answer. All right. And then uh, I think we'll just go with this as the last question. This other one, I'll, we'll save this, the Marcus Horton question. We'll save this for next week since we're really running long here. But I do like this this Chris Nielsen question. Um, and if you were to put in, uh, it'd be put in charge of renovating American Family Field and its surrounding environs, what changes would you make to improve the fan experience? I know it's oh, been a while it. for you, JP. Would you move it, it to uh, Would you move it to uh, Oregon? No, <laughs> that, would, that would make a lot of people in Wisconsin very, very sad. Um, if I was put in charge of it, I would do one of the things that Target Field has, and that is have a light rail that goes exactly right next to it, so everybody can just take the light rail. You know, there was supposed to be that. That was supposed to happen back in 2010, 2011, and then it yeah. didn't for reasons we're not going to get into here, but yeah. uh, people know why. So but that, let me was, tell you, that was exactly supposed to happen. Like, I've gone to so many games at Target Field, the light rail, like, yeah, you have to wait in line to get on the light rail or whatever. And for COVID, obviously, there'd be different scenarios for that, but uh, or different concerns with it. But in terms of being able to just, like, get on the light rail that goes right in front of the stadium, this is awesome. Yeah, there was supposed to be the uh, the rail that was going to run all the way from, you know, the Twin Cities down to Chicago and go through Madison and Milwaukee. People in Madison would have been able to jump on the rail there and then come into look, Milwaukee. Look, let me tell you, my, my, right folks, park. my folks were stoked about that idea. And not just because we were living in Minnesota at the time. And it was just like that would allow us to get home way more often because we wouldn't have to make the really long drive. Um now that drive seems quaint because uh, I just drove 35 hours through snow and mountains. And that was a, mm. that was a trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's the number one thing that I would be able to bring that I would want to bring to the table. What, what do you want to bring? So like some episodes of DuckTales from the late eighties and early nineties, um, when they could actually just bring in some helicopters and lift Scrooge McDuck's money bin and just move it wherever they wanted to move it to, because that was a thing that you could do. I would take and I would move the park about five to six miles to the east, put it right down where the Summerfest grounds are. Um, maybe we would add some landfill or something so you could have both the Summerfest grounds and the park there. But take the basic park that you have right there and put it down on the lakefront, and then it would be perfect. It would be absolutely beyond perfect. It would also be like a, a short little bike ride for me to get there. But you would have to, like, the. So would there still be room for, like, 
would there still be a lot of room for tailgating? That would be the the big difficulty. Well, then I'm out. I mean, I I get it. I understand that would that would be the problem. Though honestly, in that area down in the Summerfest grounds, there is a lot of space for parking um, that is utilized by Summerfest, which gets crowds that are you know four or five times the size of what you fit in um, into AmFam Field. I guess not four to five times. It would be I think they they peak out at about a hundred to one hundred twenty thousand for like a really good day when things are really going well down there. So like yeah, but three times people- the size. A lot of people don't drive. They drive and then take shuttles. Um. Yes, a lot of. I mean, people... that's what that's what I mean. That's what I did all throughout high school. Well, yes, but people also do the same thing for brewers too. They, you know, yeah, go to a bar and shuttle in and whatever. So yeah, but I think those are people from Milwaukee. There aren't very many people from outside Milwaukee that do that. No, that's it's true. But yeah. I think there's you could find ways to make parking more to build up more parking down there. But yeah, I mean, I just like I so I've for all, all the good things about like being able to take the light rail down to to the tar- to target field like it isn't really a day like it's not like we're going to a game and we're going to spend all day down there. Like we're going to go hang out with a bunch of friends. It's like we'll meet you at the game. Um, and I mean, yeah, there's some nice, you can some nice it. brew pubs and restaurants in the area. Yeah, but there. that's I've a different, that's them. a different thing, right? Like yeah. that's going out to a restaurant and then going over. That's not like just sitting out and grilling. And like, I know that I have a very different, cause I think we've talked about this, like in general, like that is something that when I go to a baseball game at, was it AmFam field now or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, like if I go to, if, when I go back for the first time and like, you know what three years or whatever however long it's been since i've been to a game like i want to sit and tailgate like and spend a couple hours beforehand out there and just be able to throw baseball around and just like chill and have that be my day mm-hmm. um and i know that's something that not a lot of not everyone like cares about all that much but um i don't know i think it's i i haven't even at peak times in terms of going to games it was maybe five or ten a year um tops mm-hmm. and and that well, when was you, like when you I never lived in, in the city so that you know was yeah always and so it was it. it was always it was always like a big day it was a day out to be able to drive and whether it was a couple of hours from you know whether it was an hour from madison or a couple hours from college like it was we went with friends and we were going to be there all day and and which is also why like i don't really care if it takes me a long time to get out of the parking lot like i don't really care about that i was planning to spend all day there anyway sure um so no, I, I mean, think the other thing I would do is add a little bit more green space so we don't like have to throw the ball in between a bunch of cars like that'd be nice. Yeah, there there are certain things that could be done that way to make it better. But yeah, I think I think we've hit upon our big things. And I do agree. I like I would want to maintain the tailgating aspect of things. But, you know, there was another site that they looked at because they did talk about the lakefront when they were looking at building, you know, what became Miller Park. And um, one of the pl- sites that they were talking about ended up becoming the Harley Museum. You know where that is? Kind of right down on the river there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a site that they also talked about, and that would have provided more uh, more parking than what they had, I think, like readily available on the lakefront, but still not like. And really, why they why they put that park where they did is there's some there's some good reasons for it in terms of its centrality to a lot of different places that Brewers fans come from 
Um, so you're drawing, you're, you're kind of in the center of the universe as far as being able to draw people in and you're not forcing people to come, you know, if, if you live in one kind of corner of the, of the area, you're not forcing them to go, you know, to the other corner of it for that. But there were also some less savory reasons why the park ended up where it did. And that's, you know, the old, the old crap that we still deal with all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too, is this is not, I, th- I think not where you're coming from on this as well, but I think a lot of the discussion about like where Miller park is versus where it, it does come down kind of that centrality issue, because there aren't, you know, the Midwest is different than a lot of other places that like get a lot of baseball attention in terms of their parks and things, because like it functionally serves the whole state mm-hmm. and, and having, and having a place where it is designed where people can just like kind of drive in like that has been my only experience in, in terms of, of it in general. And yeah, I mean like it was always a really special thing when we got to go out to a baseball game and it still is. It's something that you kind of block off the entire day for and, and plan to, you know, grill and, and bring drinks and kind of do all of that. So I think being able to kind of protect that is something that matters to me and not everybody else. But I think that that's... I think it matters to a lot of people, though, JP, like it, it does matter to a lot of people. Yeah, well, and it doesn't matter to like... um me i don't want to say like everyone well, i was gonna say like just people who don't necessarily get out of milwaukee that much and that's not you right because you could end up going to lacrosse a bunch and you end up like being able to travel a bunch but mm-hmm. there are also a lot of people that ate like just don't really ever leave milwaukee area because there's a lot of things to do there um and a lot of reasons to stay where you are these days but um but yeah i i think being able to connect the park and which was like the light rail thing right like be able to connect the park to so many different ways so people from wisconsin can get there and enjoy it uh is something that i i would value yep and i uh, the thing that just gets me is you've been to some of the great waterfront ballparks right like you've been to san francisco you've been to pittsburgh you've seen what that can be well we could have never been i've never been to san francisco um but like i've been to like I've been to like uh to Baltimore. Okay. Which is another really great like waterfront ballpark. I've been, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to Seattle and I've been to other places, but um like in terms of a lot of other places, it is just kind of I don't know. Like there's not family atmosphere sounds like so corny and cliche, but it is there is something to be to be said for like I and having a bunch of people in in the Twin Cities just like kind of complain a lot, to be frank, about the fact that like it's expensive. Why? Because in order to do anything down there, you're going to have to go out to eat. You're going to have to do this here. You're going to have mm-hmm. to do that there. Um, and it becomes much more expensive for people to be able to do it rather than like kind of bring your own stuff in. And all you're doing is paying for gas and tickets. Right. Mm-hmm. Like and and yes, there's a drinking part of it. <laughs> you know like everybody wants to be able to enjoy themselves there is there is that part of wisconsin culture as well uh, i know you said we're going to save this i'm gonna kind of uh oh you want to take it go uh, ahead let's do it well i just want to know what the trade offer is 
oh, this is the the trade offer. Okay, yeah, we can talk about this. I talked about it on the uh, minor league extra with James and got his opinions on this. Okay, so Marcus Horton asked, are the Brewers more likely to trade for offense or to sign some uh, some more offense after the lockout ends? Um, one of these particular trade offers that I saw this week involving the Mets and Hater definitely caught my attention. What do you guys think of that offer, and would you accept it? So, so that, what's that offer? So that trade offer was proposed by a Mets fan, and it seemed oh. to be well. Yeah. So I actually thought it was kind of interesting, and I'm I was oh, okay. I'm for it. So, but it, right. it was definitely like trading away the pieces that they don't want anymore to get uh, a player that they do want. But in this case, they were giving up some decent pieces. So it was Jeff McNeil was the headliner of it. And then uh, Dom Smith was the second piece of it. And then um, JT Ginn, the pitching prospect, Mm -hmm. was the third piece. Mm -hmm. And I thought that seemed like a pretty reasonable offer, considering you're getting three years of both Dom Smith and uh, Jeff McNeil. And, you know, the full six years, whatever, of, of JT Ginn. I thought it was intriguing. James was actually less interested in it than I was. So, yeah, what do you think? Very, I don't really care. I wouldn't <laughs> take. I wouldn't take that. If, so, if you're going, if you're going to the Mets, it's Brett. Bad, it's Brett Batty or tell tell you to screw off. Oh, okay. So you would you would go for the high end? I know that uh, uh, Toby uh, from Brewer Fan mentioned something about wanting to get their catching prospect. Who's that? Uh, Francisco Alvarez. Yeah, Francisco Alvarez. Yes. Um, but you'd have to probably deal more than Hader to get him. I just, yeah, I don't think you're getting I'll, a top 10 prospect for him. I also, I can swear on this, right? I forget. Oh, I have been. Okay, good. Sorry. I've been trying to be like, been trying to be good as a guest. <laughs> um, I don't know why. Uh, but yeah, like I ain't trading shit for a pit catching prospect. Are you kidding? yes i do know that from having co-managed a uh dynasty baseball team with you for a while your utter disdain for catching prospects yes (laughs) well it's i think they're really good if you have them and then you like don't really want to trade them but like what what are you like how are you going to decide whether or not you're going to have like the random pop-up guy who ends up being able to be successful or whether you just like traded the farm for francisco mejia who still can't get game time like and that yes, you true. can say and yes, you can say that for however many like different prospects, and you can do like the, there's no pitching prospects or like there's no such thing. Whatever ten staff stands for, yes. Um, and like I don't think that's a thing either. I think that's just kind of shorthand. But at the same time, if I am trading my number one trade asset, which I would imagine, would we agree that that's probably Hater? I mean, outside of like Corbin Burns, um. But like the, the in terms of like a likely trade uh trade piece, like Hater is kind of like the guy, right? Uh yes, I think that's correct. And like, am I going for somebody who's like 30 plus and somebody who's like kind of has a questionable bat is like my answer at at first base and then like going for some pitching prospect who like is gonna have high volatility? No, <laughs> it's a fair point. And so and not to say that I don't have questions about Brett Batty. I actually wrote about it recently um, and saying that I think we're actually overvaluing the elite third base prospects more generally uh, across the league because they're not quite as good as um, I think everybody is kind of saying they are. But you are looking, if you are trading your elite piece, where is the elite talent that's coming back in that deal? Okay. 
because if I'm trading elite, I want elite. Otherwise, what I'm going to do is continue to do what the Brewers have been doing, and that is continue to accumulate depth and just wait for one of them to break out. Well, and I think that's what this would be is, and also, but like, why wouldn't you just spend money and do that instead of like trading your best piece? Well, I, I think that because they're probably going to then spend money in other places. But like, why wouldn't you try to trade your best piece to like actually get long-term elite solutions for it rather than like do it for the depth thing that you could just pay money for? It may be that nobody wants to give up elite to get hater. Then just keep your best player. Like, just keep your elite pitcher. That could be an option. Yeah, I mean that that could be something that they do. They have. I mean, it's not. It's not like before. Right, it's not agent. like. It's not like the Brewers aren't trying to win. No, it it could very well work out that way. It just it, it was a thought, and I'm big on Jeff McNeil. I think that he's a very good hitter, and I would very much and and flexible in a way that I think Craig Council would be able to really utilize him. And get him in the lineup uh, just about every day against right-handed uh, pitching, and then mm-hmm. have him play off the bench on those other days. And it would be—I think he would be a very, very useful piece for them. And I—I I still hold on more hope than Do- on Dom Smith than I probably should. But well, no, I, I think he can be useful, but he's not. I don't think he's going to be elite. No, he's not going to be. Probably, probably. And so, well, yeah, but we can, we can hedge on everything like but there's there's also the piece of the puzzle as well that why would i trade my elite pitching piece for all that kind of depth when i could basically wait until july trade you know a piece that is like 20 to 30 uh, on my kind of like prospect depth chart and get eduardo escobar and kind of have that for the stretch run yeah that's possible the thing is they are so good at manufacturing pitching at this point that I think they feel like they don't necessarily need Josh Hader, especially having Devin Williams on the team already to be an elite shutdown reliever. And they can then surround him with all these other pieces of guys that they, that they like and that they can sort of conjure up out of nothing. Um, I think that they have a lot of faith in their ability to do that. And I think that their record supports that they should have faith in that. So if right. that's what their, their strategy is. But if their strategy is that to be able to conjure it out of nothing and to be able to say, like, we feel confident that we can get a pitching staff and what we really struggle to get is elite bats. Why would I not use my pitching to get that elite bat that I feel like I can't necessarily produce? Right, and that is and they've, a valid and point, already, but and you may not be able to. Who, who's offering it? Like, is that guy? I there? don't know, but you don't have to trade. No, you don't. But like, like if you're in a position in which you're like, I have to trade no matter what because this is kind of like peak moment, and I'm not trying to compete this year. Like, you kind of just have to take the best that you're going to be able to offer, and that's when you get into the situation where the Yankees are like, well, guess what? You can't have any of my good pieces. Like that's when you get in that situation. Your only mm-hmm. chance to be able to extract maximum value is when you walk to them and they say, well, I'm not giving you anything. And you say, thanks. Bye. And then they're like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Actually, we really do want him. And you're yeah. like, make it worth my while. Otherwise I'm walking. Cause I don't need to do this. Well, and I think ultimately to wrap this up, that's where, that's where we are with this because that's what they've been doing with hater for years now is they've been saying, yeah. we're willing to listen on him. Yeah. And I'm sure they've had people approach them and mm-hmm. their stance has probably been, you know, unless you're offering us an elite talent coming back the other direction, we're not interested. And so yep. that's why 
Josh Hader is still a brewer is because nobody has done that. Now, does that calculus change as we approach free agency? I think it does, but I don't know how much it changes and how quickly it changes. So, you know, it maybe they take him straight out to the to the end, like they they run him right out there to the end and uh, you know make a qualifying offer to him at, at the end of the twenty twenty three season, and that's it. But I don't know, and there actually may not be a qualifying offer system that that does seem actually likely to to be a change that comes out of this is ownership isn't as invested in that because they don't think it it suppresses wages as much as they care about but when you are in a position where you say like when it's a question of declining returns the answer to that is always going to be to trade him now always yes you're balancing it on the on the other side of you're competing right now and he is a very valuable piece to compete with you yes. already made that point. So that's the, yeah, yeah. but so I'm you saying have to, like, you have the, to balance the, that out and decide yeah. what your, your, I mean, if the brewers for some reason, and I would not expect this, but if the brewers get to the trade deadline in 2023 and for some reason are not in it and like, you know, they're, they're 10 games back or something. And Josh Hader is still on the team. I think that's when, you know, you move him for what you can get. Right. But, I don't know that we're ever necessarily going to get to that point. So they probably are just going to hold out for a, a, an elite talent so far. They've held out. Yeah. When you have got an age, when you've got an aging stri- striker, good Lord. Uh, when you've got, <laughs> when you've got uh, when you've got an aging closer, like Craig Kimbrell going out and getting Nick Madrigal plus. There's no way that I'm, sitting on like basically i would say like congratulations we're talking that plus because not only is hater better he's younger he's cheaper so Mm. like buckle up otherwise i'm not interested yeah i think they have put the the price very high on him and as they should so yeah all right well thank you so much for joining us uh this week to you the listeners and to you jp uh it was fun we uh we definitely without uh having james or steve here to uh put the kibosh on it we've gone well over the hour 40 minute mark so i wish i wish i would have sworn more now that i (laughs) forgot about it so anyway um well, we do appreciate it if you would leave us a review um, and rate in the podcast. Paul will read literally any any anything that you write. I can talk uh, and in the review if you give us uh, five stars. And make sure you just talk about how much I sucked and how everybody was great. Everybody who does this is great. I haven't been blamed enough for bad stuff lately. Just tell just. <laughs> Like put everything, even if I wasn't on the podcast that you didn't like, just say I like had some really terrible things, but everybody else (laughs) is phenomenal. Right. And that I think would be the most accurate review that you could be able to put in. So make sure that you're putting in that, that five-star review. Exactly. Um, And while you're there, hit the subscribe button on Apple podcasts, Spotify, pocket cast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time on Milwaukee's Tailgate.
ね。